The Good Nature Podcast comes to you from Conservation Optimism and its founding partners, Synchronicity Earth and the University of Oxford. Welcome to Good Nature, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light on conservation challenges. In each episode, we interview an inspiring conservationist. Our fascinating guests come from many backgrounds, artists, scientists, activists, and many more. I'm Sophia, a PhD student focusing on marine conservation. I love doing science and telling stories through film, writing, improvised comedy, and now podcasts. And I'm Julia, a science communicator and journalist. I'm passionate about sharing what people are doing to make the world a better place. Hi, Julia. Hey, Sofia. Today, I am very excited to announce that we're going to be speaking to Carlos Magdalena, who is a botanical horticulturist at Kew Gardens in London. And that basically means that he grows and manages a whole bunch of different types of plants. He has a pretty fantastic nickname. He is known as the Plant Messiah because he's figured out how to get some of the world's rarest plant species to grow. One aspect of Carlos' job that is really exciting is the fact that he travels the world to collect seeds and cuttings of extremely rare plants. And then he brings them back to Kew Gardens and work with his colleagues to find a way to propagate them. And sometimes it's a bit of detective work because for some of these plants, very little is known. So you really have to try different things and find out what's working. And the reason why Carlos' work is so important is that often we think of animal species when we think of species going extinct, of species being threatened. But according to a report by Kew Gardens, a fifth of all the world plant species are actually threatened by extinction. Those are only the ones we know about because uh, plants are overall, I think, under catalogued and understood a lot less than animal and particularly mammal species are. I'm pretty excited to talk to Carlos because I think that he seems to be somebody who has a lot of energy and who really loves talking about plants. I um, I watched a TED talk by him and in it, he compared a botanical garden to a museum and he was just saying how unthinkable it would be to ask the director of a museum why their works of art shouldn't be destroyed. But of course, that's what conservationists kind of have to justify all the time. I think that a lot of his job is telling people what the importance of plants is and like trying to justify to people why they should care about them more. So he also does a lot of outreach work. And that's really interesting, actually, because a lot of people just overlook plants without really realizing it. When I worked at Chester Zoo, obviously, it's a world where you have lots of animals. And so it's really cool. You have all these species, but you also have lots and lots and lots of plant species and people just don't really think about them. And working with the horticultural team there it was just magical to discover all this world of plants that I had myself overlooked before so I think it's brilliant that Carlos is on a mission to bring plants in the forefront and make people interested in them. I completely agree well let's hear some more directly from him. Hi, Carlos. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been really keen on having someone to talk about plant conservation for a while. So this is a very exciting episode for me. And actually, I wanted to ask you what triggered your interest in the vegetable world to just kickstart this episode? 
Well, I guess that when I was a, a child, I was initially perhaps more attracted to animals and things that move. But then, because I come from Asturias, which is in the north coast of Spain, that together with the interest of my mom, which was always uh, looking for more plants and having more plants, she, she, she had a house full of plants and uh, a garden full of plants, and then on the top of that, she had flower shops. So that kind of exposed me a lot to the to the plants and then i believe uh, plants are not obvious when you don't know anything about a plant to you it just looks like a green static thing which doesn't do much but if you follow up many different plants from many different seasons you start realize that they realizing that they they move they think they take decisions they behave in the same way that animals do is just a different format. And then once you understand it, and you understand the relationships they have with some of the insects or maybe birds, the strategies they have to not to be eaten or to attract a pollinator, then it really gets fascinating. And somehow, at some point, as conservationists, you realize something which I think is really important for me, which is like, a, if you are an animal conservation person, very often you restrict yourself to either a species, like let's say a rhino or elephant or something like this, or, or perhaps a, a group, you know, the penguins or the bats. And if you are working with them, you can just kind of work with a few at any one time. But if you work in a botanic garden, we have 80,000 species in queue at the same time. And I can attempt to propagate maybe, I don't know, 100 or 150 plants in one morning. So when you put it all together, I thought it was fantastic, you know, because I can, I can look after way more species at, at, at any given time. I can keep them going in many different places at many different times. And then they don't bite. They smell wonderful. Well, some of them, they really stink. <laughs> so I realized that perhaps for a, for a career, you know, because at the end of the day, everything needs to be preserved, isn't it? From the smallest lichen to the biggest tree. But I realized that perhaps uh, there was less people working on it and that I have some skills which I could use to do something about it. And then I could work with hundreds and hundreds of species at any given time. For most people, plants are like a green paint that you see in the landscape, isn't it? You need to start knowing them to start realizing things, what grows first and what comes later and why this plant does this thing and the other one doesn't. And then you start, once you start unraveling things about them, it's a never-ending uh, topic. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it sounds like, the, like you say, there's just so much variety. I also didn't realize that your family had flower shops when, when you were younger. I'm really curious, so you've talked about the diversity of plant species that exist, but within your work you do a lot with very rare species. Could you tell us a bit more about the rare species you work with and what has caused them to become so rare in the first place? We work with so many that I could be talking to you about this for until until tomorrow. If you have to put <laughs> down one reason why they are going extinct is a single word and it contains two letters, is us. So we, we are transforming every single inch of the earth at the moment. What I mean is that every single change we do, it has an impact of something. The plants are really intertwined with the things that happen around them. They cannot move, so then they rely on many different things. For example, one, one species was this Nymphea thermarum, which was a small water lily from Rwanda. I only knew that there was a water lily in Rwanda and the population was about 50 plants. The minute I found out this, I was like shocked because 
for a herbaceous plant, 50 plants could go in one day. So I asked around and find out that there was two plants being grown at Bomb Botanic Gardens. So I asked for seeds. They told me that they were very difficult to germinate and uh, they kind of better forget about it because we tried a few times and these two plants that came from Rwanda, we never managed to propagate them. I was put off for a couple of seconds, but then I realized that if that's the case, then we are really in trouble. It makes sense if there is 50 plants left and nobody can propagate this, then it was just a matter of time, which could be one hour, one day, or 100 years before it disappears. So they send me some seeds, and then that's the interesting thing about biodiversity. You think water lilies, and then you think they all live in water, isn't it? And they have these paths floating on the surface. So what you do is try to grow them like any other water lily, and then it doesn't work. So you kind of hold on for a second, trying to work out and uh, new things, then you test pretty much everything you can think of, nothing works. And one day I was home cooking tortellini and when the water boils, you see the bubbles and you go like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, there is gas coming out of the water. Oh, hold on a minute, gas in the water. And then automatically I realized this thing, which is that uh, aquatic plants, when they are underwater, they struggle to get CO2. Uh, because plants really need CO2. It's one of the main things they need to grow. But any normal plant take it from the air. In fact, there is way more CO2 now than there used to be. But in the water, it doesn't dissolve as quick. So in small volumes of water, the plants tend to wipe out that CO2 and then they struggle to grow. So I thought, what about if I get these water lilies, which are tiny seedlings, exposed to the air, so that they have only one or two millimeters of water, so they are totally wet, but from the first leaves, they touch the surface, and that did it. So they start growing with the last few seeds I have, and I managed to grow five plants. By the time they were blooming, a botanical illustrator came and do a botanical illustration, so she was finishing this in the herbarium at Kew, when the German guy that discovered the species 20 years ago and collected the two original plants from Bonn happened to pass by, seen the drawing, and ask, where are you drawing that from? And she said, oh yeah, there is a Spanish guy which has a few. So he rushed to the nursery because he just was coming from, from Rwanda and, and certified that the, the species was gone in the wild. Went to Bonn, and chances of life, of life a rat uh, walking the, in the glass house and eat the last two plants. So all of a sudden, the tortellini plants were the only plants left in the world. No pressure. I love calling it the tortellini plants, <laughs> just like based around your experience. That story leads quite well into the next question. You've been nicknamed El Mesías de las Plantas, or the Messiah of Plants. How do you feel about this title? It's, it's, it was all quite funny because basically uh, this was done by a Spanish newspaper. It was like a feature that they run on in the area where I am from. They don't contact you to make the interview. They just choose you and make a profile on you. So I was at home with my mom and then I went like, uh, oh, I really fancy one of those Spanish coffees. You know, so I went down into the corner, have a coffee, and then in the, in the coffee bars in there, usually they have newspapers, start pacing pages, and then suddenly there is a cartoon of me with the heading El Mesías de las Plantas, the plant messiah. And then I was like, what? The thing got a bit thicker when uh, BBC's uh, wildlife documentaries, Tembro, which is... Sometimes it's doubt as God, you know, it's the God of the natural science broadcast. 
went and read this thing and made me an interview and without me knowing it he went and dropped to everybody in the UK that I am the plan messiah uh, and you know th this is this moment when you are in the in the theater watching the premiere and then you realize that this is like when you you get this nickname on the first day of the school and then you know that it's going to be chasing you all the way to the university. You know, it's, it's quite funny when you have a little bit of a scientist approach because what is the first thing you will do? Obviously, look at the visionary. What is a messiah? Interestingly, it's defined in different ways in different countries. Like, for example, my book, The Plant Messiah, got published in Holland as the Lord of the Plants rather than the Plant Messiah because they thought it was going to be heretic to religious sensibilities. And the French... They were sending me emails saying like, are you sure you want to go with this? And I was like, well, it's not that I am sure, it's that it's the name it has. And then they finally went ahead with it. But in English, interestingly, it's not as uh, religious because, for example, apparently in Holland, the Messiah is only Jesus Christ. But in English, a Messiah is not subscribed to any religion. It's somebody which has a, a cause and has a message. And I thought, oh, that's fine then. If, if, if you know what I mean, because I have quite a few messages and I have kind of like 400,000 causes. Interestingly, it gets people talking, you know? Some people love it, some people go like, oh, you're right. Some other people go like, oh, how pretentious. He must have a, a messiah complex. But still, it starts the conversation, you know, which is always important. I thought I could maybe act a little bit as the ambassador, you know? I am, obviously, I'm not the only person working in conservation of plants. There is many more people. But uh, sometimes I guess that the public image needs, or the public um, opinion, needs to have a character which has furry uh, hair and, and, and eyes, like the animals, you know, to try to speak on behalf of them, if that makes sense. I don't consider myself holy. Well, actually, I do. Actually, I do, just because I am a specimen of Homo sapiens, and like everybody else's, we have, I, I believe we do have godly capabilities, if you like. I can prove you this in no time. We are the only species on this planet capable of absolutely destroying totally the ecosystems of this planet. We could do this at the click of a button. So if we have this power, surely we have the power of doing the total opposite. I mean, that's definitely what we believe in. <laughs> we surely hope so. Think about it. We do really have powers which are kind of like to the level of a god. No, that makes sense. You've spoken in the past about how people need plants, but plants also need people. And you said in an interview, many of us don't like plants only because we don't know them well. So how do you start to cultivate curiosity about plants so that people learn more and maybe start to take action? Many people maybe think feels uh, not very connected to, to plants, but one, one thing which always fascinates me from them is like, think uh, how important these things you do not care for are. They have modified the atmosphere over millennia so that we can live on it. Basically, every single molecule of oxygen you breathe comes from photosynthesis, either at sea or at land. Uh, most of the carbon dioxide has been fixed by them. They totally have changed the face of the world. Three out of four medicines come from plants. Everything we eat comes from plants. They are a really uh, important part on art, from the columns of Greece to the sunflowers of Van Gogh to the creation of Impressionism by Monet uh, and the water lilies. They have a huge sim symbolism. 
they are present in every single corner of our life. So I, I will find hard to believe that whatever your interest is, there is not going to be a plan which is related to it. But then we forget about this. You know, we never think that you wake up uh, wrapping cotton and then you go to have breakfast containing wheat and coffee. So basically, before you finish the end of the day, you will have used maybe 50, 60, 70 species of plants. Do you know where they are? Do you know where they come from? Do you know what is the trick is? Do you know the history of how this got in cultivation? Can you grow it at home? And, and I think the minute you go through that path of, oh, I'm curious about this plant, let me see how I can grow it, is going to be a starting of a path which can, can become a highway. And I found, for example, now during lockdown, the, the plants I have at home and really keep me alive, alive during lockdown because I was watching the changes and the spring was coming and something was blooming and something was sprouting. And But um, going back to how to do this, it's just like maybe think about what plants around your life. You may be curious about it because I will be surprised if you don't find one and then try to grow it. I love the idea. And actually, I, I really like what you were just saying about lockdown because I felt that actually plants became really important for me during lockdown because, you know, we were stuck inside. And then suddenly, I think somehow because it was spring, it just really became that obsession of whenever I was on a walk, I was like looking for flowers and plants. But lots of people, I feel, well, in general, plants get overshadowed by animal species, even though we see them everywhere. So why do you think that happens? Why do you think people tend to focus on animals but overlook the plants? Well, this is very interesting, I think, because it's all to do, I believe, with a, a, a term which is so important in conservation and is called empathy. Why? Because for you to be concerned about something or to be worried about something, you may need to put yourself in, in their pants. So when you see a, a rhino throttling in the savanna, like very proud and stuff, automatically it triggers a, an emotion of you, isn't it? Because you, you, it has legs and arms like you do, it maybe works in a different way, but it's quite easy to relate. You know, we have four limbs, they have four limbs, they have a head, they have a nose, they have some ears. Even the, the facial expressions of some animals are similar to humans. You can, you, you can read in an animal if he's hungry or if he's happy or if he's sleepy. And therefore, we can, we can then relate to them much better. But things like plants, I don't know. Some people will even wonder if they are even alive. And it's just because they don't understand them. And then understanding them takes long, long time. You travel the world to collect seeds and cuttings of these extremely rare plants. And I hear you've even braved swimming with crocodiles because you suspected that you might have spotted a new species of water lily. So why is it so important to find and study these species that are on the edge of our understanding? Yeah, well, because I think it's, uh, it may sound silly, but you cannot protect something that doesn't exist. Because even if it exists, if it's not recorded, it doesn't. Officially, it does not exist. So, so, so you need to, uh, you know, in order to protect a species, you need to, to find that exists. And then once that you know that it exists, you need to know where it is, how many of them they are, before you realize that it needs some help. Uh, sometimes with plants, it's also difficult to study them sometimes in the field. Very often you are in, maybe in Australia, in a very remote place, and as you say, maybe there is crocodiles around, and then... How do you know if the, the biology of that water lily is that 
it gets pollinated uh, by itself or it requires a specific pollinator to pollinate that. Uh, you are just there for half an hour and then at the most botanists what they will do is press a leaf and a flower and then these things will be lost you know you wouldn't be having time of doing this research unless you really apply for big funding but if you have the plant in, in, in captivity or in cultivation and you exclude pollinators and the plant produces seeds you know that it's out of fertile if you cross it with itself and it doesn't set seed, you know that it needs another specimen. So there is a lot of things that you can learn. And sometimes by learning what they like in captivity, you also then can conclude what the problem is in the wild. And then just going back to this thing you say, like swimming with crocodiles. Well, hopefully I didn't. The problem with crocodiles is you know, you sometimes you don't know if they are there or no. And and then people was like, he's so brave that he got in the water. Well, honestly, you know, sometimes I just panic. You know, I just really did. Sometimes portray me like if I was a kind of super crazy adventurer, which will put myself in very risky situations. Oh, no way. You know, I try to avoid it as much as I can. But for example, with this thing of Australia and the crocodiles, it's just like... You fly to the other side of the planet, you drive for a week to a super remote area, you get there, maybe you are the only person which has seen that species and realizing what it is for the last 15 years, and perhaps the other time was when it was described. Mentally, you come from a situation where you knew what happened to the Rwandan one. And my moral argument is, if I get in the water, and I get attacked by a crocodile, chances are I may die. If I survive, I'm going to have like serious injuries. This is going to be a big drama for the Australian government, you know, because they don't want to have that image that tourists get eaten. Yeah, of course. No, yeah. And then that fertilizing water lilies. Uh, what, a, what a irony, isn't it? So, so, so that is the one side of the brain tells you this, but the other side of the brain tells you, okay, so what about I don't go? I don't collect it. And five years later, uh, something like we just discussed in, in Rwanda happens in there and the plant is now extinct. So thinking about the future, what makes you optimistic about the future of nature? The most obvious thing is that there is no future without nature. So do we have a choice here? I have this reflection with, with my father when I was about 13 or 14, because you know, I was born in, in Spain in 1972, and then there was Franco, a, a fascist dictator there. And then uh, by the time democracy came to my life, I was like 10 years old. So when you come 14 years old talking about conservation in a country with everybody loves shooting things out and killing bulls, they were like, right, okay. And, and then my father was saying like, well, there is no future in conservation, really. So that's all very good, but maybe you need to look for something else. And my reply to that was like, well, actually, if there is no future in conservation, then there is no future for anything, really. So that was one thing that kept me going. Yeah, it's always good to rebel against your parents. Why you should we remain optimistic? There is another thing which is going to sound very arrogant because we are in the right side of the argument. It's one of the few discussions you could have in which you have, I guess, all the power of the science, the ethics, the politics, the everything. Because the thing is, not doing so is so, is laughable, really. So we have one last question for you now, and that's one that we ask all our guests. 
If you had to make a case for one species to save, what would it be and why? The humans. Because, because if you save them at all levels, including morally and ethically, they will, they will save or stop killing the rest. In the process of saving the other animal species, it's just a process of saving ourselves. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and answering all our questions. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to, to be here and thank you for the opportunity. Sophia, can you feel the plot optimism? I can. That was such an interesting conversation. I really like the fact that it was like, just pick a plant that you like and try to grow it. And, and you know, you just have this bond with things that you start taking care of. So it's like, you know, having a pet, but instead you start having plants. And I think that's a really nice way to start this connection and start triggering interest in, in those species. Absolutely. I mean, I'm awful at looking after plants. I have a very, very bad track record of owning plants. But yeah, no, I completely agree. And also it's interesting to think about what he was saying about how many plants you interact with and use in your daily life in terms of the products that, that you're involved with. They are really all around us for sure. It's When you start thinking about it, it's quite impressive. But also... It's, it's just this magical world that we don't really tap into. So this morning, one of my housemates' plant just grew a new leaf and it grew in like a circular shape instead of just appearing as a fully formed leaf. And I had no idea that's how they grew. So I feel there's so much to discover in the vegetable world and that makes it really exciting. So I used to, f I feel you, I used to be really terrible at growing plants, but I feel I have improved with the years now that I have a bit more interest in it. One of the things that I find really amazing about plants is like, I remember at one point seeing a sped up video of a plant growing and moving in response to the sun or in response to something. And I think that they just live in this totally different time scale to humans. So a lot of the time we don't relate to them or see them as alive or perceive the ways that they're moving or the things that they're doing, but actually there's so much going on with them. And I think we need to remember as well that the time, the time frame for plants can be really different. I remember reading a book by Elizabeth Gilbert, which is called The Signature of All Things. And in this book, there is a, a person who is really keen on botany and she is looking at moss. And basically, she starts seeing that after decades, all the communities are different and they've moved and there is this kind of like wars between different species. And you wouldn't notice that if you looked at them only you know, day to day, it's the timescale is completely different. Exactly. And also just to think there are trees that are thousands of years old. I mean, also just thinking about, you know, in terms of human lifespans, another thing that I found interesting talking to Carlos was just thinking about the way that being exposed to things as a child can unconsciously build knowledge and interest that is useful later on. So it's kind of like when we were talking to Carl and he spoke about, uh, trying to breed birds in his garden when he was a child. And here, Carlos's parents were, uh, they had flower shops, right? So he was always kind of surrounded by plants and by growing them and caring for them. And obviously that kind of sparked something in him, which has now been to the benefit of the greater plant world. I definitely found that that happened for me as a child because I just always loved the sea so much. For sure. And actually, plants are all around us. So you don't necessarily need to go to a specific place to start exposing your kids to plants. 
But I mean, if you do want to do so, then obviously, if you're in the UK, Kew Gardens is this amazing place for plants. And I go every year to see the Orchid Festival, and it's just such a pleasure visually, and it makes me discover all these plant species that I didn't know existed. Another thing that I found really cool about the interview was just thinking about moments of insight in science. So for example, the way that he kind of had this breakthrough moment when he was cooking tortellini to try and figure out how to like, you know, the distribution of gases and carbon dioxide within water. I definitely find that sometimes I get really overwhelmed by the things that I'm doing, like in the moment, if I try to figure out a problem too hard and sometimes stepping away and just thinking about something else actually means that the answer comes to me. And I just thought that was a really nice reminder of the fact that you don't always have to be kind of like very consciously hammering away at a problem in order for your brain to figure out a solution. Yes, and I think you can apply that to other areas as well. It's not necessarily just for research, but I know I have that with writing as well. Sometimes if I feel a bit stuck and I just can't, can't get my writing done or I just feel a bit uninspired, sometimes doing something completely different, like you know just going on a walk or making pasta, then suddenly you give your brain that space that it needs to be creative again. And I, I find that really important for well, writing specifically. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the most hilarious part of this interview for me was just thinking about how nicknames are given and perpetuated, you know, and like the, the ways that they can mean different things in different places and, and sort of have these different associations, sort of like potentially religious or potentially just giving a message. And the fact that maybe he felt a bit self-conscious about the nickname at first, but then, you know, seems to have really taken ownership of it. I really like that aspect as well. And when he mentioned France, I thought it was really funny because being French myself, I could see how there the title Plot Messiah would be really jarring to people or might seem quite unusual. So it's it's interesting to think that, you know, you might decide to keep it because actually it'll get people talking and then you start a conversation. So it's an interesting way to to think about it as well in terms of how to use your nickname to your own advantage. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I've, I have yet to have a nickname that I think can be used to my advantage. I was called Sophocles in school because I was so wise. Anyway, I mean, it also played quite nicely into his thing about humans having godlike powers now and the way that that's a responsibility. I mean, the fact that we've kind of reached this point, you know, often referred to as the Anthropocene, where humans can completely alter the world and the planet in a much more sort of extensive way than used to be possible. And so just trying to think about the ways that maybe we can harness that power. But I find this idea of the fact that we're all wholly in some way quite powerful. And it made me think of the Spider-Man quote, with great powers come great responsibility. And I think here it's very much this idea that yes, we all have this power, but we really need to make sure that we are using it for good and we need to be more conscious of the impact we're having. And take into account the fact that what we're creating can have a massive impact down the line. So that was quite thought-provoking in a way. I mean, so much to think about. I think it was a wonderful interview. Yes, and I think that's it for this episode, Sophia. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can send us voice notes at podcast at conservationoptimism.org. And you can also subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
If you can, you can also rate us on Apple Podcasts and that helps other people find us. This episode was funded by an ESRC Impact Acceleration account grant through the University of Oxford. Original theme music composed and produced by Matthew Kemp.